For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated at him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. All right, good morning, church. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll wrap up the first chapter of Ephesians as we've been walking verse by verse through this New Testament letter. Before we get to the text today, I want to give you a quick update on some things around here. Um, one of those things um, that we're all aware of is that this, with this recent surge through the pandemic, uh, we've seen a lot of people affected. This is true nationally. It's true in our state, in our region, uh, and it's certainly true here in our church. And so uh, I imagine for almost all of your families, You've been affected in some way, whether you've been sick or someone around you has been sick, and we know that's caused problems and, and, and issues, um, and, and we've been praying for many of you. Uh, we also want you to know that a number of our team here ha- have been sick over the last couple weeks, last couple months, uh, and we've kind of worked through each of those, and thank, Lord willing, or, or thankfully, uh, people are doing all right, but I do want to let you know that that includes our senior pastor, Sean Thornton. Um, so this last week, uh, Pastor Sean was feeling some symptoms and went into his doctor and tested, and he did test positive for COVID. And so uh, Pastor Sean spent the week recovering at home. He's been isolated. We've been texting all throughout the weekend. He's really turned a corner here as we've come into Saturday and Sunday. And so he's doing a lot better. Uh, But for obvious reasons, he is isolated right now, not only from us, but from his family. Uh, So I've been asked to step in here this weekend and we can continue to be praying for Pastor Sean. He is on the mend, but I just want to invite you to be praying for him and not only for him, but for those in our congregation who are sick right now or recovering from this or many other illnesses. And so we've done this from time to time throughout the pandemic. We want to continue to be a church that prays for the sick. So would you just pause with me right now uh, and pray for our senior pastor, Sean Thornton, and all of those who are sick in our church body. Um, Father in heaven, I want to stop and pray for Pastor Sean right now. I want to pray that you would bring full and complete and rapid healing to his body. God, I pray you would bring him back to us quickly. We pray um, that he would have full recovery um, and that this would pass soon. Uh, I pray the same not only for Pastor Sean, but for all in our church congregation, our Calvary family who are sick. God, would you, the great physician, bring healing upon our church community and upon our families. And Father, furthermore, I want to continue to boldly ask, as I have before, that you would remove this scourge from our earth, that we would be able to move past this as a world, as a nation, as a state, as a church, and move into whatever you have next for us. So God, we pray your healing miracle upon the many, many people who are sick right now in our community, in our church, and we pray this in the healing, resurrected name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you for continuing to pray. As we jump into Ephesians chapter one today, uh, I want to try to answer one simple question for you in the time we have remaining. And the one simple question I want to ask is this question, what kind of people are we We sang at the very beginning of the service, I am who you say I am. And I would like this morning to start to answer the question, who does God say that I am? 
I think we need to answer this question because I think when we look closely, we'll realize that we live in a nation and a culture that has completely lost its mind on the answer to this question. It is a question we are obsessed with, but we seem to have no answers for. And so we reach for answers of all different kinds. Now, if you don't believe me when I say our nation, our world is obsessed with this question, what kind of person am I? What kind of people are we? Just remember my words the next time someone comes to you bragging about or sharing what their Enneagram number is with you. The next time someone comes to you and insists that you understand them in the category of their Myers-Briggs test results. I want you to remember this next time you're on the internet and an IQ test pops up and part of you wants to take that IQ test just to see if you're smarter than your neighbor. I want you to remember this next time you see one of those silly quizzes on the internet that asks what kind of dog you are or what kind of popsicle you are or what Disney princess you're most like or what celebrity you most look like. This is a question we are obsessed with. It's a question we constantly want to know the answer to. What kind of people are we? And in a culture that has booted God out the door, we have no answers to this question. And yet I believe that the book of Ephesians as a whole And this passage in particular gives us answers to the question, what kind of people are we, Calvary Community Church? Those of you in this room listening online with us right now, what kind of people are we? And I believe Ephesians 1, the very end paragraph we're about to look at, is going to answer that question. So again, if you have your Bible with you, Ephesians 1.15, have that open in front of you or on your mobile device, we'll begin this way. It says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So it begins with the words, for this reason, which points us back to the passage Pastor Sean covered last week that talks about that because of the gospel, we have been included in Christ Jesus, that we're part of God's family. We've been a redeemed people, not just us here at Calvary, not just the Ephesian believers, but everyone who has ever called on the name of the Lord is made part of God's family. And because they are part of God's family, Paul says this, I have ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So here's what we see in this very first verse. They're part of God's family. They've been included in the family of God. They are sons and daughters of the most high God because of the gospel. And Paul is rejoicing, giving thanks, remembering them. And there's two things Paul points out about the Ephesian believers. That's worth us noticing as we try to answer the question, what kind of people are we? Here's the two things, the two defining features of God's people. Number one, you'll see the lordship of Jesus. that They have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And number two is a love for all of God's people. The first thing we'll look at is that they have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want us to think about that phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, for just a moment. What we tend to think, and what many Christians do, is they hear the Lord Jesus Christ, and they kind of think that's his full name. Like his first, middle, and last name is Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the truth. His name is Jesus, and we've given two titles to him. We've acknowledged two titles to him. The first is the word Christ, and Christ means Messiah. It is the appointed and anointed King of God to rescue God's people. He is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. But on the front end... We as Christians call Jesus the Lord Jesus. Now, when a lot of Christians say the Lord Jesus, what they think we're referring to is the fact that Jesus is God. And this is true. We believe that he is the second person of the Trinity. God made human flesh, the word become flesh to live among us. That is absolutely true. 
But I want us to reflect this morning on what it means when we say the Lord Jesus Christ, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, we are saying that he is God, but we're saying more than that as well. Let me show you here in verse 15, the word here for Lord is the same word you'll see all throughout the New Testament is the word kurios. And here's what kurios means. It is he to whom a person or thing belongs and about which he has power in deciding. It is the word master and it is the word Lord. This word kurios means he is God, but it means more than that. It means he's in charge. It means he owns you. It means he directs your life. It means he has complete and total authority. Now, what's interesting about this word kurios is in the ancient Roman world, everyone knew what the word kurios meant. It was a common word. Everyone used this word, but no one would have ever thought to assign it to this Jewish carpenter named Jesus. Everyone would have heard kurios and they would have known exactly who the kurios was. See, in the ancient Roman Empire, there was only one individual who was called kurios. And it was not Jesus or any other religious figure. There was a three-word formulation that everyone in the ancient empire, everyone in the Roman Empire would use to show their allegiance and their affiliation with the Roman Empire. And here was the three-word statement. It is that Caesar is Lord. Caesar, the emperor, he is Lord. He's the kurios. He's the king. He's the master. He owns everything. He gets to direct everything. All authority and power belong to him. That was the three-word phrase that you would say to show you belonged in the Roman Empire. But then something happened. Jesus Christ lives and does his ministry and dies on the cross. He's buried in a grave and three days later bursts forth in a glorious resurrection and ascends to be seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And suddenly, these pesky little Christians in the ancient Roman Empire started making a different statement. And they caused quite a fuss with this statement. See, everyone in the ancient Roman Empire declared that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is kurios. Caesar has all authority and majesty and might. And these Christians came along after the resurrection of Jesus and started saying something different. They said that Caesar is not Lord. He's not Lord. He is not kurios. He is not master. He has some authority and sure he makes the laws and we're gonna live by them as best we can, but he is not the ultimate authority in our lives. And here's what you need to know. Those pesky little Christians started saying that Caesar is not Lord and that got them into a host of trouble. It got them yelled at, screamed at, mocked and belittled and beaten. And at some point, it got so intense, the opposition to this simple statement that Caesar is not Lord, that Christians began to get burned alive, thrown to lions, executed publicly, and banished from polite society. See, everyone believed that Caesar was Lord. Everyone believed that whatever Caesar said, everyone should submit to. And Christians in the ancient world started saying, no, there is a different Lord, and Caesar is not it. And here's what you need to know, child of God. That to be a Christian, to live in love like Jesus, to walk with Christ in this day and age, is to continue the ancient tradition of rejecting any lordship other than the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is to be a people that stand firm and say, whatever sets itself up as an authority above and over God himself, over Jesus, is something we will reject. See, Christians, I want us to understand that this is not something that was just relegated to the ancient world and Caesar. There are many things that call for your allegiance today. And just as ancient Christians said, Caesar is not Lord, we must declare a few things this morning. Can we start with this one? Popular culture is not Lord. 
Just because everyone says it and everyone believes it and it's what you have to do to belong in polite society in 21st century America doesn't make it right. And there is an ocean, a current of culture that is taking us this way. And we as Christians go, no, no, we're not gonna be a part of it. We're not going along with the moral chaos. We're not going along with the relativism. We're not going along with popular culture. We as Christians do not think popular culture, popular opinion is Lord. We think Jesus is. And so that's what we do. We stand here and we say, it's not Lord. And that's gonna make us weird sometimes. That's gonna make us mocked sometimes. We're gonna be called all kinds of names because we don't get on board with what all the celebrities and movies and television shows and internet celebrities say. And that's okay because popular culture is not our Lord. Listen, I want you to hear me on this. Modern ideologies are not our Lord. So there's all kinds of ideologies that come from the left, that come from the right, that come from universities and political think tanks that demand that you agree with them on every point. And we simply must as Christians say we can't go there because that's not our Lord. Whatever the ism is you wanna follow, that's not our Lord. It's not our ultimate authority. Hear me on this, the experts are not Lord. I am grateful for the people who have expertise in finance or in medicine or in economics or in in science or all sorts of different areas. There are wonderful, brilliant people in this world who have offered us insight. We just need to be clear that just because someone has a doctor before their name or a PhD after their name doesn't mean they hold authority over Jesus Christ. The experts are not Lord. The people who set themselves up as the wise ones of this age are not the people we submit our lives to. Like, I want you to hear me on this. The government is not Lord. We are told in 1 Peter 2 and and Romans 13, and Jesus says, render unto Caesar what's Caesar. So the, the government has some authority over our lives. But let's be abundantly clear. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is king over our government and every government, and he is the ultimate king over all things. The government is not our kurios. It is not our Lord. It is not our master above all things that all of our allegiance goes to. I want to be more personal on this because it's easy to look out there. Can we be clear this morning that my family is not Lord? That we all grow up in a certain household with certain traditions and views and values and perspectives, and we can start to internalize those. But actually part of what it means to grow up and mature in Christ is to look at what our parents taught us that's outside of what Jesus taught us and to reject anything that stands against Jesus. And so I go, my family is not Lord. I love my parents. I care about them. I honor, I respect them, but they're not the Lord of my life. They are an authority in my life, but Jesus stands above them. The same goes for our spouse, for our kids, for our best friends. They are not Lord. Let's get a little more personal on this. Listen, my emotions are not Lord. As Christians, we need to declare over and over and over again that the most determinative factor in our life is not how we feel in a given moment. We are not called to obey Christ when we feel like it. We're called to obey Christ always. Not when I feel like it, not when it seems right to me, but always. And far too many Christians live their Christian life in such a way that when they feel like obeying, they do, but when they don't feel like it, they don't. And what that shows is the ultimate authority in their life is not Christ, but rather their emotions. Listen, next, can I say it this way? My reasoning is not Lord. Too often what we do is we go, well, if I already agree with it and the Bible says it, then I'll believe it. But that's not what I'm called to do. I am called to agree with what God says, even if I can't reason my way to it. That's why the scriptures say, lean not on your own understanding. And if your basic position is, if I don't understand this thing about God, I won't believe it, then it is your rationality, your brain, and your reasoning that is Lord, not Jesus. 
And then finally, this is actually the most difficult one of all of them to declare. Can we just declare in this place over and over and over again that I am not Lord? All of us need to wake up every day and remind ourselves, I'm not Lord. I'm not in charge. Actually, to become a Christian is to call upon the name of the Lord to say, God, you're in charge, I'm not. You call the shots, I don't. My life is forfeit, it no longer belongs to me, it was bought with a price. See, as Christians, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, we are not simply saying that he is God. We're saying that he's in charge. He's the kurios, the master, the king of all things. See, the ancient Christians got in trouble. The ancient Christians got thrown to lions, burned alive, cast out of polite society because of a three-word declaration that they made. And we, children of God, make the same declaration today. It is simple. It is this one, that Jesus is Lord. That he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the sovereign God over all. That's what we believe. And any other authority that sets itself up and tries to claim parts of our life, we reject as an ultimate authority, not because there's no other authority, but because there's no higher authority. See, Abraham Kuyper puts it this way. He says, there is not one square inch over the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. See, Jesus owns everything. It's all his. He's Lord over it. He owns it. He directs it. And it's his. And listen, that doesn't just mean church things. Jesus is not the Lord of church and Christians. He's the Lord of all things, which yes, means he's the Lord of this church service and he's the Lord of your life. But he's also the Lord of plumbers and the Lord of bankers. He's the Lord of teachers and he's the Lord of politicians. He's the Lord of all things in your life. He's king over all of it. And our job is to acknowledge that, to confess it, to recognize that lordship and to recognize his authority in our lives. From time to time, I'll hear a, a gospel preacher say something like this. I wanna call you today. I wanna invite you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And I get what they're trying to say. They're trying to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. But can we be clear this morning? You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. He already is the Lord of everything. He's already got it. That's already who he is. And so what do we do? We acknowledge it. We confess it. We submit to it. And we conform our lives to the fact that Jesus has all authority. Listen, for Jesus to be Lord means this. Jesus' lordship means he defines and directs everything. He gets to tell you how to live. He gets to tell you who you are. In a culture that has lost all sense of who we are and what we're meant to be, Jesus says, I define you. I tell you who you are. I tell you what's right and I tell you what's wrong. I tell you what's good and I tell you what's bad. I tell you what is the path of life and what is the path of destruction. Jesus defines it all and he directs it all. That's true in your life. It is true in your family. Jesus gets to direct how your family works, how your marriage works, how it works with your kids. Jesus gets to define and direct all of that. Hear me on this. Jesus gets to define how Calvary Community Church functions. We as leadership are not in any place of authority to say, we got this on our own and we'll figure it out. No, we have to submit to the lordship of Jesus because he is Lord over all. Jesus has authority to define and direct every part of our lives. Hudson Taylor says it this way, that Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. May this be true of your life. May Jesus not just be someone you call Lord and God, but rather the one who directs and defines every part of your life. See, according to Paul in, first, or in, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15, there are two defining features to the people of God. Number one is the lordship of Jesus. And number two is a love for all God's people. 
Remember, he says you have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says this, that you have a love for all of God's people. Now, there are times when I read through the Bible and I kind of wish we could just like scratch out certain little words. And, and the one I wish we could scratch out here is that little pesky word, all. Because I would like it to say love for most of God's people. I would love for it to say love for the lovable of God's people. But that's not what it says. It says a love for all God's people. Meaning, am I supposed to love everyone in the world? The answer is yes. But the New Testament puts a certain burden on me that I am especially supposed to love God's people, those who are followers of Jesus and part of his church. And I'm not just supposed to love the ones I already like. I'm supposed to love all of them. And the reason I am supposed to love all of them is because I am supposed to display something supernatural through my life. And if I am only loving the people who it's easy to love, there's nothing supernatural about that, right? Like, let me put it to you this way. There's nothing supernatural about loving people who are lovable. That's just like by definition what you do for lovable people. You love them. They're lovable. They're great. You love them. But that's not supernatural. Anyone can do that. Listen, there's nothing supernatural about loving people who benefit you. Like, oh, they help my business or they help my family or they make me happy or they make me laugh and I just love that in them. Okay, that's great. But there's nothing Holy Spirit, power of God inside you supernatural going on there. There's nothing beneficial. There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing supernatural about loving people who look like you. This is the most ancient human thing. You're part of my tribe, I love you. You're not part of my tribe, I don't love you. That's not supernatural. That's human, that's flesh. Listen, there's nothing supernatural about loving people who think like you. There are all sorts of people in this world who happen to agree with all the great opinions you have. And to say, I just really love those people who agree with me on every point. <laughs> That's not supernatural. That's just so normal. Finally, there's nothing supernatural about loving people who vote like you. Like, yes, I go to this political rally and everyone celebrates all the things I already celebrate. I love these people. There's nothing godlike or supernatural about that. Let's just confess this. The love for all of God's people, that's what's supernatural. The supernatural mark of a Christian is this, that we have sincere love for all who know Jesus. That's the supernatural mark of a Christian, that I love all who love Jesus, that I walk into a church service like this, and I might not know each of your names, but I love you, and I care for you. And we might vote different, look different, talk different, think different. We might have none of the same interests, but I love you. And I love you with the kind of love that I'm called to love the people of God with. Now, now you think about this for a second. Love is one of those tricky, slippery words where we can use it in so many contexts that it's actually hard to figure out which we mean by this. And so I say, I love my wife. And I also say, I love my children. And I also say that I love tacos. And I also say that I love NFL football. And, and so now what I've got is all of these different loves, but which one am I called to love you with? Because those are different kinds of love. And so what am I called to love you with? And here's what you'll find in the New Testament. When the New Testament talks about love, when it commands us to love one another, I'll put it this way, the divine command of the Bible is to love each other like siblings, like siblings, like brothers and sisters. Now, this is interesting because most people who, when they hear that we're supposed to love one another in the church, they think we're supposed to love each other like best friends. And what I want to contend this morning is that there is a difference between how siblings love and relate to one another and how best friends love and relate to one another. Like I'll put it to you this way. Let's think about best friends for a second here. Um, when it comes to your best friends, you choose who they are, right? You don't get assigned one like, this is your best friend. You're like, no, right? You get to pick. You get to decide. You have similar interests and, and compatible personalities. You're into the same things. You just mesh together with you and your best friend. 
You can end the relationship on your terms at any time, right? And some of you have, and it's been tragic. You were best friends with them, but now you're not friends with them. And then finally, the relationship is based on behavior and can change. And often does when it comes to our best friends. And here's what we think. A lot of us think we're supposed to love everyone in this church in this kind of way. But here's what you need to know. The Bible does not call you to love the Christians in this room and part of our church and all around the world like best friends. No, it gives us a different command. We are called to love them like siblings. So let's think about siblings for a second. You don't get to choose who they are, amen? You just showed up and there they were. Like, there they are. Number two, you may or may not have similar interests and compatible personalities. Some of you think of your siblings and go, we do not have compatible personalities. You're stuck with them. Number three, you cannot end the relationship even if you try. Now, I don't mean you can't speak or you can't go years without speaking to them. I've shared with this congregation that I have a brother and we've not spoken in many years and praying and hoping for restoration there. But here's the truth. He could go another 20 years without speaking to me and he's still my brother. Like nothing changes that. It just is what it is. We could go the rest of our lives and never speak. He's still my brother. And finally, the relationship is based on birth and it cannot change. Child of God, this is how we're called to love one another. This is how you're called to love the people in your room. Listen, you don't get to choose who they are. Tough luck. This is who we are. This is who God chose to save. This group of people right here. And we don't get to choose, we don't get to pick, we don't be like, I wish she wasn't in there. Like, we just don't get to do that. We accept it because that's who God saved. You may have similar interests, you may not. You may look the same, think the same, vote the same, act the same, love the same things, or you may not. And you can't end the relationship even if you try. You can walk away from Calvary Community Church, you can walk away from every church. And if you are a saved child of God, you're still in their family, you can't change it. Why? Because the relationship is based on birth, spiritual birth new birth, and it cannot change. We are part of the family of God where Jesus is our big brother and God is our father, and that is locked in for all of eternity. So what are we called to do? To love one another in that kind of way. Can I challenge you when you walk through these doors on a Sunday morning to just go, there are my brothers and sisters. I don't know all their names. I don't know their stories. They probably don't think like me, vote like me, talk like me, act like me, but they're part of the family. And because of that, I'm going to try to love them as best as possible. I'm going to care for them. Because the Christian who somehow declares that I don't care for all these other people and I don't like people who don't look like me, think like me, vote like me, talk like me, is a Christian who has missed the point entirely and might not even know God. See, 1 John 4.20 says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love, the God, cannot love God whom they have not seen. It matters that we, Lord, we confess and admit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and that we love one another like siblings. It goes on this way in verse 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. So Paul recognizes the Lordship of Jesus in them, this vertical relationship and this horizontal relationship of their love for all God's people. And then Paul begins to pray for them. And here's his prayer, that God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This isn't some kind of other spirit. This is the Holy Spirit of God. He is praying that God would give them the Holy Spirit. Why? You'll see it right here. So that, if you have a Bible with you right now, highlight, underline, circle, any time in the New Testament you see so that. It is giving us the reason. Why does Paul want the Ephesians to have the Holy Spirit? Here's the answer. So you might know 
him better. Here's what Paul wants. Paul wants the believers in Ephesus to know God better. He wants them to know Jesus better. This word I have underlined here, know, is an interesting word. We'll see it in verse 17 here. It's the word epignosis, and it means a precise or correct knowledge. And I think this is actually a really interesting fact to linger on. See, Paul wants them to have the Holy Spirit, and he wants them to have the Holy Spirit so they can know God better. And I find that interesting because so often Christians who talk about the Holy Spirit a lot tend to talk about emotion or feeling or experience. The way they talk about the Holy Spirit is as an affect, something they feel inside of them. And I don't want to downplay that because that matters. I just want to point out here that Paul wants them to have the Holy Spirit so that they can know epignosis with precise and correct knowledge about God. In other words, the reason we have the Holy Spirit, the reason we want to be filled with the Spirit is this, that the Holy Spirit empowers us to think carefully and correctly about God. That's what the Holy Spirit allows us to do, to think carefully, precisely, and correctly about God. And when we talk about thinking carefully, precisely, and correctly about God, we have a word for that. And that word that we use is a very simple word. It's the word theology. Theology, the study of God, thinking about God. Now, now here's what I suspect. If I did an informal poll of the room and asked, who here is a theologian? I bet you there would be some hands that slip up because you went to Bible school or you went to seminary or at some point you've read a lot of books and you consider yourself a theologian. But here's the actual truth of the matter, and this might surprise you, but I believe this is true to the core of my being. It's this, that every human being is a theologian. Every one of us, you and you and you and me and all of us are theologians. When we think about God, we become theologians. Even the person who says they don't believe in God is, in fact, a theologian. The only question is this. It's not whether or not I'm a theologian. It's am I any good at it? Am I any good about thinking? And here's what I don't mean. I don't mean good by like you have a bunch of fancy theological words. You don't need those. The question is, do you think precisely, carefully, and accurately about God? because you have thoughts about him. And the question that the Holy Spirit is here to empower you on is, will I think carefully, accurately, write thoughts about God? And here's why this matters. It's not so you can win a theology Bible quiz. It's because right thinking about God is a prerequisite for right living for God. Do you wanna live the life God called you toward? Do you wanna live the life and raise the family and fulfill the mission that God has given for you? It's got to start with you thinking right about God. Because if you don't think right about God, if your thoughts are muddy and unclear about who God is, it will always lead you in the wrong direction. That is the basis, the starting point. It doesn't mean if you think right about God, you will always live a holy, righteous life. There are plenty of people, including the Pharisees in the New Testament, who knew all the information about God but didn't live for him. But I want to make it clear that thinking right about God is the only starting point that will sustain you for a lifetime of faithfulness. Thinking right about God is the starting point. And the problem is for so many Christians, the starting point is not thinking right about God. The starting point is instead how they feel in the moment, how they feel about what God said. And I wanna be clear, right thinking is a prerequisite for living right for God, but right feeling is not a prerequisite. You don't have to feel right to obey. You don't have to feel like doing it to lean into what God has for you. What we need to be is a people who think right about God. And when we think right about God, it sends us in the right direction of obedience. Pastor Sean has taught this before. We'll say this again, that when we think right thoughts, then we do right things. 
then we feel right feelings. We think right, and then we do right. And then and only then do the feelings follow after. May we be a people who think carefully about God, who are not a mile wide and an inch deep, but who go through the depth of who God is and we know him better. The Holy Spirit is given to us that we might precisely, accurately, and carefully know who God is. Verse 18 says this, Paul continues to pray. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance to his holy people, and then his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. This power is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above the rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Paul talks about the glory and the power and the majesty and the might of Jesus. And in so doing, he prays for the Ephesian believers. And here's three things Paul prays for here. Number one, he prays for the knowledge of God for them, the hope in God, and the power from God. Knowledge, hope, and power. This word knowledge that they would know God is actually interestingly a different word than epignosis. He uses a word that's more about an intimacy and understanding a deep personal relationship with God. That we wouldn't just have accuracy about God, but we would have intimacy with him. He prays that they would have that intimacy, that knowledge of God. Number two, he prays that they would have hope in God. Now, when we talk about hope in our world today, we tend to mean a wish. When I say I hope something happens, what I'm saying is I wish, I wonder. I say I hope I can make it on time or I hope this works out or this one will get me in trouble this morning, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I hope my beloved San Francisco 49ers pull off the W today. <laughs> and, and listen, your booze only make me stronger, okay? I just need you to know that, all right? So, yeah, no, listen. But, but we hope, right? It's like a wish. It's like, ah, I, I hope it works out. But that's not what New Testament hope is. When you see the word hope in the New Testament, it is not a wish. It is a confidence in a story that has already been written and finished. That's what hope is in the New Testament. It's, I know how the story ends. Jesus returns in victory. He makes all things new. And now I'm just waiting for that to happen. That's hope in the New Testament. It's what Paul prays for. And then finally, power from God. Like the power from God is that same power that raised Christ from the dead that lives inside of you. Like child of God, can I remind you over and over and over again that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in your bones. Inside your very being, God dwells there, empowering you, lifting you up, animating you toward the mission he has. This is the prayer Paul prays for the people of God in Ephesus, that they would know God, that they would have hope in God and power from God. And let's be a church, let's be a people that pray this over one another. If you're married, would you pray this over your spouse before you go to bed today? Would you just pray, God, would you give him or her knowledge of God, hope in God, power from God? Pray this over your children when they're young, that your children would grow up to have knowledge of God and hope in God and power from God. Pray this over your children who are older, especially if they're wayward and not walking with Jesus. God, would you give my son knowledge of God? God, give my daughter hope in God. God, may my children the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you bring them home? Let's pray this over our families. Pray this over our nation. Pray this over our politicians. Pray this over our friends. Would you pray this over the leadership of our church? that our pastors and elders would walk in a knowledge of God and a hope in God and that we would operate in the power from God. Let's have this prayer that Paul has in the end of Ephesians 1 be a prayer we pray over all people. Here's how the text continues here, verse 22. It says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. 
Like in other words, there's this majesty and there's this power of Jesus. And why does all of this happen? Well, it's simple. It happens for the church, for the sake of Christ and his church. Paul has this heavy emphasis that if we want to know Jesus, we have got to be a people who know and love his church. I'll put it this way to you, that to love Jesus is to love his church. It is to care about what Jesus cares about and what Jesus is most focused on with his affection and his love is his church, is his people. You'll hear people from time to time say, I love Jesus, I don't just, just don't love the church. And we need to just reject that thinking entirely. We need to reject that thinking because you would not accept that in your life. If someone said to me, Brian, I love you, but your wife, Danny, I don't love her so much. So why don't you come over to dinner on Tuesday night, but please don't bring her, I'm just not a fan. Am I going to dinner? Of course not. And what do we do? We look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, we love you, but we hate your bride and we want nothing to do with her. That just won't do. To love Jesus is to love his church. And when I say church, I don't mean a building, an organization, a denomination, an organization. I mean the called out people of God, redeemed by his blood, the holy nation, the precious people that God is forming in his image. We love them. We care for them. To love Jesus is to love his church. It is to love what Jesus cares about. And Jesus cares about all of this for the sake of his church. Let's see the final verse here we'll look at this morning. Verse 23. Again, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In other words, Paul's praying and he just goes, listen, it's all about Jesus and his church. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the one you'll see here, who is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus is there. Paul's saying, wherever you look, you're gonna see Jesus. If you look around and wanna know what the world is about, what the church is about, what's going on in this world, you're going to see Jesus. He is the one who fills everything in every way. Let me paraphrase it this way. I think Paul's burden is this, that it is all about Jesus it is only about Jesus, and it will always be about Jesus. It is a Jesus thing from start to finish, alpha to omega, beginning to end. This is a Jesus conversation we're having, which brings us back to the question we started the entire morning with, and it's this one. What kind of people are we? And if it's true that the answer is we're all about Jesus and only about Jesus and ever about Jesus, it means at least a few things. Number one is that we're the kind of people who serve Jesus because he's the king, he's the master, he's the kurios and lord of our life. We serve him because he owns us and directs us and defines us. He gets to call all the shots. Number two, we're the kind of people who love like Jesus. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We look at the way Jesus loved and we go, that's the kind of love I want to lavish on the people who love Jesus on his church. We're the kind of people who live like Jesus who walk in righteousness and holiness and obedience, who look to the commands of Christ, not merely as suggestions in our life, but as non-negotiable commands from our master and our Lord. Listen, we are the kind of people who study Jesus, where we as a church refuse to be a people who are an inch deep and a mile wide, but who insist that we will be a mile wide, but we will be a mile deep. We will know the depth of the riches of the goodness of God. We will study him and think about him and think precisely and carefully about him. Listen, we're the kind of people who worship Jesus. We're the kind of people who say Jesus and Jesus alone gets our praise and our worship. The banner over our church and over our lives is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, the resurrected one. And finally, church, can I remind us as always, we are a people who make much of Jesus. Like, let me put it this way. I don't know what comes next in this world and neither do you. 
I don't know what comes next for our church, what comes next for our nation, what comes next for our world. There's a lot of unknowns in our life right now. I think we'll all acknowledge that. But can we all acknowledge, confess, and agree to this morning that whatever comes next in this world, we as a church will always and ever be a people who stand firm upon the name of Jesus, amen? That that is who we are, that is what we gather around, that's why we're here, and that's what we will proclaim from here until when Jesus returns to take us home to be with him. See, there is coming a day where every eye will see, every tongue will confess, and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is kurios to the glory of God the Father. And until that day, may we be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, here at this church in our generation forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to stop and pray and thank you right now for Jesus. We want to confess that he is Lord and he is King, and because of that, our whole lives look different. God, we reject anything that sets itself up over and above the authority of Christ, and we declare in this room that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. God, help us to live in such a way that honors Christ that loves one another. Help us know him deeply. Help us proclaim him fearlessly and boldly as we should. Father, we thank you for the words of Paul in Ephesians, and we pray that those words would resonate in our hearts as we go. We pray that in all things, we would have the knowledge of God, that we would know him intimately, that we would have the hope that is given to us through the gospel, and that we would have the power of God, that Holy Spirit, that as we go out these doors today, God, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your power. May you animate us and drive us forward that we might be the type of people who make a difference in this world, to the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen.